0: I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. Thanks for listening. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. Today, I'm talking with a newly diagnosed rare mama. Well, sort of anyways. Her daughter, Amber, is 23 years old, had a diagnosis of atypical ret for years because she seemed like... She had Brett, but didn't have the gene itself, and they didn't know what else to call it. Well, she got her actual HNRNPH2 diagnosis last year. This mom is a super advocate. She runs the Idaho Parents Unlimited Support for Disabled Families. She's sharing about how having the right diagnosis made a huge difference for their family, even at her age. She's passionate, and she's working on a campaign about why diagnosis matters and is working to help advocates access WEST tests for everyone, even undiagnosed adults. She has a lot of experience, and I learned a lot from her even after the recording stopped. Please enjoy my conversation with Angela Lundig. Hello, Angela, and welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Thanks. Yes, I'm really excited to talk to you. Your name was passed along to me by Nicole Glenn, another friend I've made in the community. So I was really excited to get that referral and obviously want to talk to you about it. Can you give me a little background? Tell me who you are and tell me about your beautiful daughter, Amber. Oh, thanks. I am a parent
1: in, I live in Boise, Idaho. And my, beyond that, I also am the director of one of the parent centers that are found in every state. And so my work is in working with families who have children with disabilities. And of course, having my own child has really was what brought me to this work. But my daughter, Amber, is now 25 years old, which is shocking to me. But, um, <laughs> And she is dealing with a a very ultra rare genetic condition that was only diagnosed a year and a half ago.
0: Wow. Yeah. In her mid 20s, early 20s, you got the correct diagnosis for her. Just a month
1: before her 24th birthday, we finally got the true answers that we had been looking for for so many years.
0: Well, tell me about those beginning days and when she was young and when you realized something wasn't right and the origin story of her of her first diagnosis. Yeah. So first, I think the fact that Amber was
1: my first child, I knew something wasn't right pretty quick. She was about four months old when, of all the crazy things, we went to my 10-year high school reunion. And it seemed that everybody in my class had babies at that time. And so I was really able to observe these other babies. And Amber was really low muscle tone, really floppy. any at that point, anyway, we had already started to notice some of those things. And watching these other babies at the reunion, I looked at my husband and I thought, "There," and I said, there's something going on here. She should be doing these things. She should be she should be stronger than this. And so that really started us on our path to talking to our pediatrician about, you know, the delays that maybe we were seeing. And the original response, so she was a great pediatrician. She said, you know, there's a wide range of normal at this age. And Amber's definitely on that latter end, but you know we're, we need to kind of maybe wait a little bit and see what happens. And so it was about at five and a half months, we really agreed, she's not meeting those milestones that she should be meeting. And uh, that started our very first testing, it started with an MRI and which of course came back normal, but it just sort of pushed us into this, early intervention services and constantly trying to get her caught up right so the things like let's get her crawling let's get her standing let's get her you know talking all of these important things and they were just not coming so the testing really began very early on and continued for many many years because testing was limited back then too so you did test for things one at a time, really. So, whether it be metabolic testing or, you know, a, a karyotype or various tests for different conditions, it just was many, many years of looking for what this could be. And it was kind of funny because. Also, the internet was relatively new at that time. And so, the only access I had to try to find anybody else with a child, maybe like mine, was I went to the America Online chat rooms. That's all that existed back oh, then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was in chat rooms trying to find somebody else that had a baby that maybe was doing some of these similar things and not really making a lot of progress, but, you know, slowly finding conditions that maybe looked like her symptoms matched and then testing for those. And then, nope, that's not it either, right? So early on, her developmental delays just became more pronounced. She didn't go backwards. She never regressed, but her progress was what we call in inch stones. And so very, very, very slow progress. But progress is good in in, no matter when it happens.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about isolation a lot in our world. and. I always think about the parents who didn't have every single resource online via social media available to them when they were going through this, you know, when they were in the trenches in the beginning. And yeah, we're talking in the 90s, right? Well, I guess, thank goodness, you maybe got some AOL on board, but (laughs) early. Yes, and I did. And it was very
1: isolating, in fact, because... One of the interesting things that happened was at that first appointment with the neurologist, he was observing her and he said, and he had been in neurology for 10 years at that time, and he said to me, I've never seen anything like this in my 10 years as a pediatric neurologist. And so as a new mom, that was one of the most isolating things that was ever said to me because I thought I'm the only person in the world that has this child and who else could be out there? and you know shockingly here we are this many years later and she's one of 110 approximately in the world so her developmental delays and her developmental disabilities are not entirely unique the diagnosis is
0: for sure Oof, yeah. those are those those are those comments you get that are seared into your brain for all of eternity forever <laughs> oh. forever yes Oof! So, did you expect in the beginning that you were going to actually get some diagnosis, some name, some label to put on Amber, or did you kind of not really go there? Oh no, I I did. I firmly believed we were
1: going to get an answer for this. While it is not supposed to be hereditary, this is considered a de novo mutation. But I have an interesting family history, and I have a first cousin um who has since passed but he is 2 years older than me and he had a very similar path of development. And so we started to wonder very quickly, could this be the same thing? And there was never anything to test him for as long as her tests all kept coming back negative. So we would not know whether or not it would be the same thing. And unfortunately, he passed away before we got this diagnosis. So we may not know unless it shows up in the family again somewhere. But yeah, I definitely thought we would get an answer. And I pushed for that for, like I said, for years. I dove into the online Mendelian inheritance in man, the OMIM database, and I just poured over that, constantly looking at all the different named syndromes and conditions out there and seeing, you know, punching in those symptoms and trying to see which ones fit and, you know, where could we land. And so, We did ultimately land in an atypical Rett syndrome diagnosis, but without a genetic cause. But that was sort of where she fit best. And so that's where we stayed. It just wasn't right. And we knew it wasn't right. I think it was in 2014 or 2015. I happened to be, because of my work, I happened to be at the American College of Medical Genetics conference in Phoenix. And I was listening to this speaker talk about these variants of unknown significance and these gene tracker databases. And I was just, you know, mind boggled. I was like, wait a minute, there's databases? What is happening in this? And so I went to a colleague of mine from the Western States Regional Genetics Network. And I said, what are the chances of being able to do some updated genetic testing on Amber? And she said, whole genome and whole exome sequencing had become so much more affordable that there would be a good chance that we could get that done as long as we could prove medical necessity. And so we had to truly explore her medical needs and what those might look like in the future if we don't have an answer. Without an answer, we don't know the trajectory at all. Right? So we did, we went and pursued updated testing, but being an adult, she got on a wait list and sat on a wait list for two years. And so finally in September of 2019, we got into the geneticist here in Idaho and did a panel. We didn't even do whole whole exome sequencing, which I was really disappointed at that point because I thought we've waited this long. I don't want to do just a panel. <laughs> yeah, like you've done you've done plenty of panels. Right. Um, but she she was pretty confident that if Amber was going to have a gene mutation or anything that was known to be causative for her symptoms, it would show up here. And it did. Pretty miraculous. But it was a very long wait.
0: That really actually kind of frustrates me that you were given this diagnosis of Rett syndrome as an, more of an umbrella term. And when you wanted to pursue testing and really find out what was going on with Amber, that it, the burden was on you to prove that she had some sort of medical necessity for it to be done when you have all this history of her healthcare already and the diagnosis doesn't fit.
1: Yeah, it is frustrating, but there is, and you, I'm sure, well aware that there is a, a mindset in many clinicians and physicians who, who, and even families and people who were, will think at this age, what does it matter? What does it matter? It's just a label. So really honing in on that medical necessity is where you can get to why
0: it matters. Yes, if you didn't get this new diagnosis what would be different in her health journey oh my goodness
1: Oh my goodness, Uh, where do I begin? Well, first of all, I should say, um, so her her diagnosis is an HNRNPH2 related disorder. It's a mutation on that gene on the X chromosome. And we have learned so much in such a short amount of time because while there are only about 100 and 110 families at this point, we have very, very active, amazing families supporting each other and learning from each other. And we have a natural history study happening with the Dr. Dr. Bain out of Columbia University. And we are truly, we're not only learning about the various issues that can come with this syndrome, but also Amber's sort of a bit of a roadmap for the younger children as well. So we're all really learning together. But one of the things that was key is that cortical visual impairment is common in this condition. And I don't think we had looked at Amber's vision since she was a toddler and not recognizing the symptoms, you know, the, the characteristics of a cortical visual impairment, depth perception. Once I got to see all of those, I said, oh, I see I see many of these characteristics <laughs> in her. And so we got her into an, uh, to an eye doctor and did a functional visual assessment. And we've just had an updated one as well. And she does have a cortical visual impairment. And she also has some uh, other eye issues. So she's been fitted for glasses. We've totally modified her environment for CVI. And we have also, on the negative side of things, we've discovered that some self-injurious behaviors sort of come about as they get older. And Amber's got some of this is more like hand biting, finger you know, those types. But Amber's got a terrible behavior of l- squeezing her neck, really squeezing her neck to the point of danger. And that started around the time she was in high school, and then it has progressively, it's, it's pervasive at this point. We, in fact, have to use a, a, a soft neck brace to slow her down from actually hurting herself. That's why I said, we're a bit of a roadmap. I don't know if others have that specific behavior, but by knowing this, we can start to look for what are ways to treat these things, right? So the collective knowledge will, Lead to those important treatments, whether you're treating certain symptoms or you're treating the whole condition.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the CVI thing's huge. It's huge. so many aspects of her development, too, I'm sure that could have, you know, veered slightly, you know, one way or the other had you known about it. Well, it's phenomenal
1: because all this time, you know, Amber will demonstrate that she knows something and then she doesn't know it. And I always say to myself, how could she know that and get that right, but then now can't get it right? So, for instance, when you do flashcards of just the alphabet, she would get them right, three or four, and then all of a sudden everything would be F or P. And she would just start saying one random letter and she couldn't continue. And she would also always choose to the left when she would get, you know, tired of when she would no longer focus, she would just always choose to the left. Well, that is absolutely CVI related. And it's a a result of visual fatigue. One of the silver linings of the pandemic is that we ended up quarantining her at our house for six weeks. She lives independently. I'll explain that if you'd like, but she lives in her own house, but she was at our house for six weeks, which gave me an opportunity to really get into doing some of these work with her to see what we could do to make progress in her learning and her communication, especially. And I, I discovered if I could do five flashcards in a row, and stop, she'd get them all right every time. But if I tried to keep going, we'd start to lose her. And so I now know she knows clearly, she knows her entire alphabet. There's no question. And we're now working on sight words. And she's got about six words that she can read consistently without question. And we would not have ever even known to try some of these things, if not for the diagnosis and then learning about these symptoms. At her age, you know, we're done with school. So this is just all this is doing is helping us expand her communication in adulthood, which leads to greater independence.
0: Yes, good job. That's so awesome. I love that you've been able to work on that through the last year. That's so cool. (laughs) It's awesome. and And she's quite proud of herself. Yay. Good for Amber. I love yeah. that. Man, you know, you were talking about Amber being the roadmap for all of these other HNR and pH 2 kiddos. And as a mom with a young kiddo, I know exactly how all those families probably felt when you joined their Facebook group. And they were like, oh my gosh, show me what my future looks like. But I wonder for you, what was it like having the RET diagnosis, getting a new diagnosis, and then coming in as the parent with the older kid? Was there a whole other different level of grief of getting a new diagnosis? Or were you just mainly stoked, ready to move forward and learn new things? Were you bummed out that Amber was the oldest kid? How did that all feel? Well, she's not the oldest. We actually have
1: um, a 42-year-old in our group Woo! and a 39-year-old in our group. So we've got older individuals. But as far as grief, no, zero grief for the new diagnosis. I am not a crier. I burst into tears when they gave me the diagnosis because it was such Incredible relief to finally know and then to connect with people because oh, yeah. we never fit, we never fit in the rec community. Uh, Amber has verbal communication. And you're not supposed, you know, that's very highly, highly atypical. And again, she didn't regress. She's always made that steady, slow forward progress. But to discover some other things, like our kids in the HNR and PH2 group, again, blown away just looking at pictures of their feet. So many of our kids have the same significant foot issues and Amber's had two surgeries on her feet. And to see those feet repeated in these kids, it was just, whoa, now we fit. The only thing that I can say, especially for families of the younger kids, I wanted and I, I remain wanting to be very careful. I share everything about Amber. She's my joy and my light. She's just a joy in this world. But I know that if I've got, you know, a two-year-old, a parent of a two-year-old, a parent of a, you know, just getting diagnosed, this can be scary. This is good as it's going to get, right? And maybe that's, I wanna give families hope that there's growth and progress and you celebrate every milestone and every bit of progress. But I know that if you're just getting a diagnosis like this and we don't know, and there is a range by the way, there is a a broad spectrum. Some of the kids in our group are able to be, they're quite communicative and um, able to physically mobile, you know, more so than, than Amber is. But, but at the same time, I, I recognize that it could be scary to see a 25-year-old who's just now learning the alphabet, right? I don't want to take away anybody's hope for what their child might achieve. And so that that's probably the only part of it that I, I want to just be very careful with with families of new kids just starting out.
0: Yeah, I didn't even actually think about it in those terms. And that makes a lot of sense. Man, there are so many families going through what you went through for over a decade of trying to find the right fit and the right diagnosis for Amber. What do you say to those parents who have maybe gotten tired of looking for the diagnosis or don't? know that they can still push for a proper one since they already got maybe an umbrella or something that sort of fit? What would you say to those families who have that inkling that there's something more?
1: Well, I would definitely suggest that they look into potentially updating genetic testing. I am a huge, enormous advocate for diagnosis matters it just is a passion of mine obviously for my own out of my own experiences but i also believe that it matters because it advances the knowledge and the science for all of us it's an all boats rise the more we have accurate diagnoses for any of our kids whether it's this condition or another one we're going to advance the speed of treatments and cures, in fact, for some of these really life threatening conditions. So I I think that families can get more knowledge about their child and how to help their child, I think it's really important as we're looking at that transition to adulthood and ensuring that we have good continuity of care. If again, if you don't know what the future might hold, it's really hard to plan for your child's health as they get older and certainly as we get older. What if I'm not around? I need to know that there are people that understand her and her condition and how to care for her as long as she's here. So I just think families, if they feel like they're tired or they've done enough or it doesn't matter, it's just a label,
0: that is not necessarily the case at all. Uh, Just go ahead and rewind that paragraph that you just stated, because that is so important in so many ways, especially just the more the merrier in the data part of it. Right. And yeah, all boats rise. I love how you put that. So important. Oof.
1: Yeah, I think that especially our Primary care docs and our pediatricians really do need to, even neurologists, the folks that we end up seeing, they need to understand why that diagnosis is so important and that it is not just getting a label.
0: Which I think is another testament to people sharing their stories if they're comfortable and having these types of conversations, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So you sound like you were always on a mission and really focused. And I just wonder, were there any points in the journey that you would have done differently? Good
1: question. No, I don't think so. I think that I did everything early on. There was, you know, like I said, I was a, a little obsessed with finding that diagnosis Mostly because I knew enough about genetics that I remember saying specifically, I don't want to find out when she's eight years old that it was something like PKU that could be treated with diet and we didn't do anything about it. I want to make sure that I have uncovered every stone. And I also have, uh, my son was born 16 months after her, and I, you know, we kind of held our breath a little bit there because we didn't know. Uh, And so, you know, he developed typically and does not have the condition, but I was looking for all the right reasons. And as she got older, though, between seven and 10 we came to just settle in with that atypical rett syndrome diagnosis because science had not caught up and that's really what we lived with knowing that science had wasn't there amber's answer wasn't there but i knew that if we ever got an answer for amber it would help others also get their answers. I've known that her whole life. And I don't know why. <laughs> I just did. And so uh, seeking that that updated testing to me, I I should share too, when the treatments and the clinical trials started to come online for Rhett syndrome, knowing that the MeCP2 gene was not her gene meant there was no, even if there are treatments that Maybe there will not be any treatments that can benefit Amber in her lifetime. Maybe there will be. But if you have the wrong gene and you don't get to be a part of any of those treatments or clinical trials, you guarantee you're not going to have anything, you know, you guarantee no access. And so as that was coming about, I was like, more and more, I wanted to find the right gene.
0: Yeah. You're just sitting in the bleachers at that point. Right. Right. Oh yeah, your rare mama intuition—that's what that all was, Angela. What, okay, <laughs> knowing knowing all of that, man, I'm just really impressed with the HNRNPH2 Foundation too. It's the Yellow Brick Road Project, right? That's right. Y'all are so good at spreading the message. And, you know, it's just such a beautiful community. And every time I see it, it makes me smile because I see the passion of the families behind your foundation. And you're all just really doing such great work with your hundred and so odd kiddos that you have in the mix. Thank you. Well, a few adults, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really remarkable, in my opinion, to see that you can have such a small community doing such big things, but I think that, you know, as I said, that all boats rise, I think that is our philosophy and it isn't just about us and our kids and our condition. It is certainly, but it is about ultra rare, you know, and rare. It's about making sure that everybody who wants a diagnosis, needs a diagnosis has access to the services and the the testing that they need to get that diagnosis.
0: So important. Yeah. You touched on the fact that Amber lives away from you, outside of the house, in adult living situation. Can you touch on that? Yeah. So uh, I have a good
1: friend who, when our girl, the, our daughters are both about two years apart, and. Her daughter's two years younger, and we had talked for about 10 years. Her daughter has Angelman syndrome, and uh, we had talked for about 10 years about what we wanted our girls' lives to look like in adulthood, and more specifically, what we didn't want them to look like, and somehow they grew up and became adults, and we really... (laughs) took that, you know, kind of went in on this together and said, let's see what we can do. And we brought them into the conversation. I asked Amber repeatedly, do you want to live with in your own house? I have it on video. (laughs) She, she, she says, yes, yes. She wants to live with Katie. Um, And so we ended up, we rented an apartment, a townhome to make sure that they would be compatible with each other. And we have a supported living agency that we go through here in Idaho. and the agency was willing to take on our, our girls and um, they provide our, our staff and we are absolutely involved in everything to do with these girls every day. I Their staff text me every morning, tell me how she's doing. They'll send me pictures or, you know, bring her over to our house and after they lived together for about nine months, we said, yep, this is working. And we were able to purchase a house. And so now the girls rent from us. And oh so we we God. all own the house. Yeah. So it, it has been an absolutely amazing setup and it works so well to the point that when Amber comes over now, if I have her over on for dinner on Sundays, which I like to do, she's immediately, as soon as dinner's done, she says, back to your house. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, she's done with me. <laughs>
0: She's just just like, like every 24-year-old. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's like, okay, fine. Go, go home. Oh, wow. <laughs>
0: okay, I did not expect this to be the answer to that question. I figured you just found like this amazing facility and like, it, oh my God, I love this. Yeah, she has her own home.
1: It is her house with her roommate and she is thriving. Wow. And her staff absolutely keep her as involved in the community as possible. This year was Weird, but obviously, as time goes forward, she'll get to do the things that she loves again. And I don't rule out just because she's 25. Now I don't rule out that there may be opportunities for supported employment in the future. It's really all about growing her continuing to grow her developmentally. And there's no reason to even remotely think that Amber can't continue to learn and grow and develop because she keeps proving that she can.
0: (laughs) Yes, I love it. I love how excited you are. I love how much hope you've always kept. And I love that she's 25 years old. And every single day, you're still celebrating every one of her accomplishments. It's just it's just amazing. You know, it makes it makes a parent like me who has a really young kid just feel it just makes me feel good. Oh, <laughs> and it good. makes me less scared. And I just love the idea that you had with your friend to make the living situation happen because you could guarantee that she would always really be taken care of and you wouldn't have to be nervous. Yeah, we've been very, very
1: fortunate in the way that all worked out, and I know that that's not something for everyone, and I know that right now with our housing affordability, I can, I don't know, you know, I don't know if we could do that today um, in (laughs) what we did a few years back, but it's working, and they're doing, they're both doing super, and I, yeah, we are just very, very fortunate.
0: Ooh, that's awesome, Angela. I think that's going to make a lot of parents go. Hmm. <laughs> Possibilities. I actually do a
1: training on that here in my office. It's called uh, "Steps to Independent Living," and so I've done that for uh, some various conferences here in here in Idaho as well. So it it does give options and things for people to be thinking about and thinking about what independent living is. Especially if you have a very young child, I think, you know, when you have your special education, your your individualized education plan has, you know, your transition IEPs require goals for post-secondary education and employment and independent living when possible. And the fact that it's written as when possible frustrates me because independent living is about making choice making choices and honoring those choices. And it doesn't mean that that person is not gonna live with supports. We all need supports. They may not have their own apartment and a nine to five job, but they're making their choices and their choices are being honored every day.
0: That's independent living. That's beautiful. I love that. I'm going to invite you back to actually have an episode just dedicated to that topic of independent living. And so, yeah, just know that's coming, Angela. OK. Well, <laughs> I want to talk about that. All right, cool. Do you have any friends that you kept from those Aero America online chat rooms? Just curious. Not from the AOL. I wound up on...
1: Uh, well several old listservs in the very beginning the very first person i met on a listserv was on a Harvard Neuroweb forum and it wasn't <laughs> even a, it wasn't even a listserv it was a thread you know like a uh, anyway and she and i are still we're friends on Facebook. And then I met several people early when Amber was three on the Angelman syndrome listserv when that's what we thought she might have. And I've kept in touch with several of those families. And then uh, families who had kids with in between atypical Rhett, atypical angelman where that because they tend to overlap and i actually hosted i had a yahoo group do you remember Yahoo? oh yeah (laughs) i actually had a yahoo group for us in between undiagnosed families that i that i hosted for several years and i've stayed in touch with many of those families as well
0: That's so special.
1: I hope those are archived somewhere on Yahoo. (laughs) Oh, I don't think so. I think ours got removed. But I will say this, the interesting thing, now that our kids are all grown, several of them have actually ended up with updated genetic testing and have their own single point mutation gene disorders.
0: Interesting.
1: Different than Amber's.
0: Wow. Never stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Right? It's all good, though it's all good.
1: I you know, and and life is good. And she like I said, she's, she's an amazing young lady and adore her. And I I love watching her make progress. And like I said, she's proud of herself. And there's really not much better than
0: seeing personal pride in the gains. Mm -mm. I 100% agree. Every single time that happens with our son, it's just there's nothing better. Nothing. And it doesn't matter when it is, I, uh, like I said, the
1: flashcards, you know, figuring out the, she's using an app. And that was another thing that I found out about, thanks to uh, one of our other HNR and PH2 moms, who told me about this app called the Writing Wizard. And Amber can do the Writing Wizard app and write with a stylus on the app and trace letters Oh wow! Again, I would have never thought to do it, and it is funny. Her special education teacher from high school is friends. We're friends on Facebook, and she said, "I wish I would have had this information when I was working with her." Yep. And I'm like, "Yep, that's one more reason why the diagnosis matters." Because we we could
0: have got in there a little sooner, maybe. But good to know about that app. We'll we'll put that in the show notes. That sounds cool. I'm gonna have to download it. it's a great app. It's fantastic. Angela, you just have so much information. You're such a valuable resource in so many ways. Uh, <laughs> thank you. And thanks for all the work that you're doing in Idaho and for all the kids everywhere. And it was just really nice to meet you and hear a little bit about your story. And yeah, I hope you'll come back to the show and give us all the give us all all of your insight on transitional living and adult living. Oh, I would love to. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and share about Amber. I'm just I'm so grateful. Thanks. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. (laughs)